0: Brilliant. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, as Phil said, we are in the series of uh, Love Matters, looking at um, relationships, sexuality, and love. And uh, it's a huge, huge subject. And thank you for your feedback from our first week. This is week two. Um, really appreciated your feedback for, on that uh, first week. And, you know, it's just a massive subject, isn't it, in our society today? Uh, I was at the bank yesterday opening an account, and um, the guy's tapping away on his keyboard. He, he uh, after a while, says, oh, what, do you, what do you do for a living? And I, I told him, and then his next question was, What do you think about the current gender debate? I was like, Whoa, here we go. My honest thought was, It's early on a Saturday morning. I don't have many meaningful thoughts about anything apart from coffee right now. But it's a real, it's a, it's a subject, isn't it, that everyone is talking about, everyone's dis- discussing. And so we've got to uh, speak into this uh, subject as a, as a community. What, does, what do we feel about this? And also understanding that, that people are trying to talk about these complex and deeply personal issues in a culture where, where some, a minority, are trying to create a context of outrage and offence and shut down any meaningful discussion on anything to do with it. And so that's the context that we're speaking into on this. And so a quick recap for those who missed uh, last week. Firstly, we looked at why does God care who I have sex with? Why does God care about this whole subject at all? What's his big deal on it? You know, is he just some kind of cosmic killjoy? And many will kind of raise questions along that line. And the the thing that we looked at was that God cares because actually everybody cares. Everybody cares who people sleep with. Everyone has a sexual morality. Even the most liberal person has some form of sexual morality. Everyone has one, no matter where you come from. The question is not if you have a sexual morality. The question is what is your sexual morality? Where does it come from? And and where's it going? What are the consequences? What are the impacts on your life uh, and other people's lives around you? That what is sex is such a critical conversation and a critical subject for everyone. Everyone has to have an answer to that. You know, is sex just hygienic recreation? Like, you know, a game of naked darts or tennis without clothes. Is that what it is? Many would have that opinion or it Or is sex precious? Is it sacred in some way? And and so how we answer that question is absolutely foundational for uh, our discussion of sexuality and and relationships. And and last week I I laid out the fact that God, uh, we believe through the Bible, says that sex is sacred, it's a precious gift, but that it's also scarred. That it's because we have not considered it sacred, it's scarred, it's damaged. And you see the impact of that in society and in our own lives as well. And that God says that our sexuality needs a saviour. That into the sexual mess we see in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, in our world as a whole, God sent Jesus. He sent him to come and save us and to call us out of that life. And that finally, that God says that sexuality is a signpost. It's a signpost to something greater, that that sex is temporary, that in eternity we won't have sex, but the God who created sex is the God who created something greater. We just don't know what it's going to look like yet, but he promises that no eye has seen, no ear has heard the, the things that he has prepared for those who love him, that the God who came up with the genius idea of sex is the God who's got a lot better ideas up his sleeve. And we looked at those four things, and that was a kind of framework, and I'd encourage you to listen to that talk if you missed it. Secondly, I'm going to explain in this series, and all of us will look at what does the Bible teach about a particular subject on, of sexual uh, morality. And, and we base our sexual morality on the Bible because we really believe that, that the Bible is God's blueprint for life. And that's why we base our our thinking on this. And you might not be listening to this, and you might not believe that at all. You might not believe that the Bible has any relevance to your life today. And that is fine. But you have to understand the way we approach it is by looking at what the Bible says. We really believe that God has spoken to us through the Bible, through his word. And as followers of Jesus, that's how we live that out. And we believe that God gives us an incredibly rich picture of sexuality, but he also puts in us the power to live it out. And both come as we follow Christ. And so if you don't believe in God, you won't care what he thinks about sex. And, and, and so we are not trying to apply our sexual morality to anybody else. This is for those who follow Christ. And, and it's important to, to understand that. And, and for you, uh, if you don't believe in God, a much more important question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and, and what did he say? And is he the way to eternal life as he said he was? And did he die for my sin? And is sin even an issue? Is sin even relevant? That's the critical stuff that you've got to look at. And I'd encourage you to, uh, if you're listening online, certainly to, to stop this talk and go and listen to Steve Wilson's talk on uh, who is Jesus from Easter Sunday. Uh, and now that you've completely ignored me because you can't bear to miss a talk on sex for pretty much anything else, we will carry on, but at least, uh, at least I said it. I want to, um, to read to you from the introduction to Preston Sprinkle's book, which I found so helpful as prepared, uh, as i prepared this message today, A People to Be Loved. It's one of the books uh, from the number that I've read. That's um, one that we're recommending that people read as part of this series. Eric Borgas was raised in a conservative Christian home. At a young age, Eric realized he was different. Other kids at school let him know it. He endured relentless and ongoing bullying throughout his schooling. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a whole host of other mental and physical problems. My name was not Eric, but Faggot. I was stalked, I was spat on, I was ostracized. On one occasion, he was assaulted in a full classroom, and nobody intervened, not even his teacher who was present. In his second year of college, Eric came out to his parents. He told them he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, they told him, among other things, that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural, and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. In the video, he encouraged other young people who've had similar experiences that it gets better. However, one month later, Eric killed himself. Eric's story is not an anomaly. The Christian church has often played an unintended yet active role in pushing gay people away from Christ. An old Baptist pastor recently told me people will always gravitate to where they are loved, and if they don't find love in the church, they'll go elsewhere. If the church is ever going to solve this issue, it needs to stop seeing it as an issue. Homosexuality is not an issue to be solved. It's about a people who need to love and be loved. Obviously, that's not the experience of every gay person in the church. Equally, I think it's more common than we would like to think. So I want to start really with an apology, an apology for for one that we've not spoken on this subject before, and there's various reasons for that, but I I know that's led to confusion as to where we stand, and I just wanted to apologize for that. The second thing I want to apologize for is that I know, certainly for me, that I've been in conversations where jokes have been made about gay people, and I've not stood up and said, I don't find this appropriate. I've kept silent at that place in that place and I just have been deeply repentant about that as I've been looking at this subject over the last couple of years and I just wanted to start this with an apology uh, for that and you know when we look at this issue of homosexuality there are three kind of major kind of strands of it first is what does the bible say about homosexuality the second is, how do we respond pastorally to those who are in the church and then perhaps those who are outside the church who uh, uh, would want to know what we think about homosexuality and maybe uh, struggle with same-sex attraction or have same-sex attraction? And thirdly, how do we respond to a world that, to be honest, largely, in, certainly in the, the liberal West, has a very different sexual ethic to the one that, that we would be talking about? That the Bible um, speaks about. And and I'm not going to be able to do all three of those things in one message, which is why this is a two-part message. And so in this first part, what I'm going to do is to give a foundation from which to build. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And the reason I want to do that and start there is because there are a minority of very loud voices who are writing books and doing speaking tours from within the church who are saying, the church has got this wrong, that the historic view of the church over the centuries is wrong on this issue and we need to change and and you know uh, certain news outlets the bbc would be pr- prime of, of those if they get them they'll put them up front and, and and the message is the church is changing its mind come on everyone we should be catching up with this new story the question is are they right what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it all changing? And I want us to be sure, because before we apply how we pastorally care for people and how we approach people in the world, we need to understand what we think about this. And so I want to teach in this first message on that. And that's this first part. And, and you need to understand though, as we do that, the, the, to the world outside, the arguments I'll make today will mean nothing to them. <laughs> To a secular humanist, as I once was, the Bible is irrelevant. They don't believe it's the Word of God. They don't even believe in God. So there are too many Christians trying to make biblical arguments in the secular space, and it just won't work. Don't, Don't take this talk this morning and tweet it to your gay friend who happens to not be a believer and say, hey, you should listen to this. This is not for them. We'll come on to that in later weeks. So so I'd encourage us to think deeply about these things first as Christians. What does the Bible say? And and it's a little bit like, uh, and I've seen it again and again, it's like uh, you know when you're on holiday and you're trying to get directions from uh, from someone who's a foreigner, uh, and this classic English technique is just speak loudly and slowly and surely they will understand. No, they won't. They're French or they're Spanish. They do not speak English. And so Christians using biblical arguments in the, in the secular space is just like that. Speaking slower and louder won't help you, won't help anybody. So that's the first thing to, to understand. And the second thing is that that's why in, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time we'll have the second part of this message where we'll look at the pastoral response and how we position ourselves in society on this, on this issue. So what does the Bible say? Five key passages, lots of work today. I've got a longer period of time. I'm hoping that you'll be able to stay with me through it. And I want us to be really, be ready to be provoked and changed. Because as you will see, the Bible has got a lot to say about sexuality, but it's also provoking to everyone. I'm surprised if there'll be anyone who gets through this series without being deeply provoked in some way, gay or straight, over what the Bible says through this series as we look at sexuality together. So what does it say? God's design. Let's start at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 which is the the blueprint, the template for so much of Uh, God's creation that we see in the world around us. Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're going to skip to chapter 2, verse 18, where it unpacks that a little bit. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him, a suitable helper, the phrase is. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, a suitable helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, hey, Christmas has come early. No, he didn't. He said... He said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see is a few things from this passage. First is this, that God's image is expressed in men and women together. It says, God said, let us make man in our image, male and female he made them. That together we express the image of God, and that sexual difference of men and women, which we see in Genesis one and two, is is uh, 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 one of the patterns of difference that you see right the way through these these, uh, chapters. So there are many other differing pairs that the writer lays out for us. Light and darkness, earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. God designed us in complementary pairs. And in the Hebrew, which is a a Romance language, so uses uh, male and female nouns, it uses male and female nouns for all of those pairs. So to the point when you get to male and female, as our good friend Glenn Scrivener says, you should... that. Point, think to yourself, well, hey, these guys belong together. The whole story is about complementary pairs right the way through. And the third thing to say is that the suitable helper phrase used of woman is not sexist. God uses suitable helper as a phrase to apply to Himself. So if you think it shows in any way inferiority or weakness, then then the Holy Spirit to you is also inferior and weak, and you should probably take that up with Him and good luck with that. Some have said that, well, Eve is a suitable helper because she, not because she was a woman, but because she was human. You know, it's like, you know, there was the parade of animals and Adam, you know, the best he can come up with was Bessie the bear. He stuck her in a white dress and thought, "Nah, I'm not marrying that. And so God had to come up with another plan. But actually, it's interesting, the word that's actually used for suitable, it's konegdo, which is a compound word, and k means like, and neged means opposite. So konegdo is a, is a word that means like and opposite him. So when God brought woman, uh, Eve, to, uh, woman, to man, it, when it, he, if he wanted someone who was like Adam, he was to someone k, who is like Adam, but he didn't. He said, connect someone who is like, but opposite him. The complementary difference between man and woman is important in God's design for marriage and sexual relationships. This difference is important. And, and, and sexual attraction, you can see as well from this passage, is something that's beautiful. That God designs. That in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, it's, it was pure. It was undefined. There was no shame. We so much see, see so much sexual shame in our society. We've all lived with it, and yet in the beginning there was no shame, no shame, because that's the way that God designed it. It wasn't like you know He left Adam and Eve there, and they were like, "Hey God, we just worked out this bit fits into that bit, and whoa!" And He's like, "Oh, that's disgusting! are oh, you perverts? How did you come up with that?" That's not how it worked. God designed it this way, as something that was beautiful and pure. Verse 24 is the end last verse. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. And it it shows that this wasn't just about a little happy story about Adam and Eve. This is a template, a blueprint for human relationships as a whole. Now, this is not a killer argument against same-sex relationships, but it really is important to understand the design of God as it's laid out in uh, uh, Genesis. Can I just say, though, as well, Some people have summarized this passage and used it on social media and even in conversation in such a horrible and nasty way. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Some kind of smart, smug comment. And I just want to stand against that kind of stuff. This conversation is so respect needs to be done with so so much respect, so much care, so much love for people. And to summarise this beautiful passage of scripture with "God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve," is disgusting in my mind. We should never do anything like that. And that, that's why the church, to be honest, has got itself into so much trouble because of that crass way of summarising something that's so powerful and so beautiful, and that just should not be walked over in some trivial way. Second passage I want us to look at is why did God judge sodom genesis nineteen is the second time we come across homosexuality. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Uh, Lot is the, uh, 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 someone that comes up in the story in Genesis. He's the nephew of Abraham. And Lot invites these angels into his home. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, it's clear from the context and from the wider uses of the word know there, the Hebrew yada, it means to have sexual relations with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But the men of the city said, stand back. And they were about to kind of burst through the door. But what happens is the angels blind the men of the city, drag Lot back through the door, and then rescue him and his whole family while then God pours down judgment on the city of Sodom. Now, this passage has been horribly, horribly abused. And I I remember watching Grieved one time on uh, on the TV when I saw what was a a peaceful, it seemed to me, gay pride march surrounded by a group of angry so-called Christians with signs like burn faggot and uh, gay pride is why Sodom fried and other such stuff. And again, I just want to stand against that. You know, Shouldn't the followers of Jesus be people who stand against bullying of any kind? Who stand against abuse of any kind? Look, we Christians are the, one of the most, if not the most, persecuted people on the planet. A recent survey showed that a, 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 over 50,000, probably close to 100,000 Christians, were martyred in 2016. One every six minutes of your brothers and sisters died for their faith in 2016. We know what it's like to be persecuted, so we should stand with anyone who's persecuted. We know what it's like to be bullied, we should stand with anyone who's bullied. And it's so important for us to take that place and that position. It's important to note also from this passage that Lot offering up his daughters to be raped is described but not endorsed. When we read the Bible, we have to understand that there are numbers of things that are described as happening, but that does not seen, that mean to say that God endorsed them. You know, Lot was in a, in, a, in a city that was clearly in a sexual mess, and he was part of it. The angels actually rescued Lot's daughters and Lot himself from such a disastrous re- decision and, and request on his behalf. And it's important for us to understand that as we read the Bible, both for the wider context, but also particularly in this passage. But the reason that I believe that this passage is not relevant to our discussion on homosexuality today, is that this passage is about gay gang rape. Now, the Bible stands against gang rape in any form, heterosexual or homosexual. That's why I don't think this passage is relevant. We can't use this passage as, as, a, as, a, as a kind of lever in this uh, an argument to say, well, surely that, that God judged Sodom for... I don't, no, no. When Sodom is mentioned later in Scripture, I think five or six times, the homosexual sex is never ever mentioned. And so it's really important. I think just to—I think we should erase this whole passage from our discussion of homosexuality. I think it—it it inflames tensions. It—it just—it's just so upsetting for so many people, and it's been so so badly abused. I—I I, I would never mention it when discussing homosexuality with anyone. I think it's irrelevant, and I think it's about a whole different thing that we need to think about differently. Third thing is this. Uh, passages in Leviticus 18 and 20, does the law apply? This is what it says in, in Leviticus 18, 22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, it's detestable. In 20 verse 13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. These are really hard words, very hard words for some people to hear, but they are clear, and because they're so clear, there are some who would argue today, no, we, we've misunderstood them. Some would say, these words are not what, saying what they're saying, what you think they're saying, because this is about male cult prostitutes. You'll hear this argument again, a minority of voices, but they're very loud, and they're coming into the church. They say, no, this is about male cult prostitutes. We, we, we shouldn't even... Uh, take this into account. But, But notice in this passage, there is no mention of prostitution in this whole passage. Some scholars would say cult prostitution didn't even exist in the day that this was written. Notice there's no mention of rape, there's no mention of coercion, there's no mention of age difference, there's no mention of a different judgment from the active and passive partners. They were unqualified statements. Some would say, well, we've got to write this off because there's other laws in Leviticus that Christians don't follow today. You know, you ever had a BLT? Naughty, naughty, better drop the B. get rid of that bacon, next next time you should have an LT, because Leviticus says don't eat bacon, that's for sure. Ever wore clothes wearing multiple types of thread? Better not, better burn that lot, get yourself some pure cotton or something else. Ever had a tattoo? Oh my gosh, (laughs) Leviticus really speaks against that. The point is made repeatedly on social media and elsewhere, and you'll read things like, Christians usually use Leviticus to ban gay sex, should put down their bacon sandwich, or shut up. Some write off Leviticus because it calls for the death penalty in ways that we wouldn't do in our cultures today. So a little rabbit trail, which I think is really important, is how do we handle the laws in the Old Testament, particularly the Levitical laws? And the thing to understand is that, as Christians, we view the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Jesus said, the scriptures are pointing to me. The whole of the Old Testament story was pointing to Christ. In fact, Jesus also said, I didn't come away to do away with the law, I came to fulfill the law. The whole point of the Old Testament was to show us as humans that there was a holy God and that we could not possibly live holy lives that we needed a saviour. It was all one long build-up to the point when Christ came, where mankind could finally humble ourselves from our pride and admit, we can't do this. We cannot build a planet, planet better than God can build it. That God himself is the only one who is fit to be our ruler and our king, that we should be serving him, not rebelling from him. The whole story is pointing to Christ, that there is one who is pure enough and lovely enough and wise enough and strong enough to be king over the universe and his name is Jesus. The whole story is pointing to that point. And so he said I came not to do away from the law with the law but to fulfill it. So in what ways are the law fulfilled? Well, there are four different ways that we see the law fulfilled. Firstly, some of the laws are fulfilled directly in Christ. So Leviticus talks about you should take a ram as a guilt offering. Anyone sacrificed a a ram recently in your back garden? Please, you know, perhaps don't tell the RSPCA. It won't be keen. Why don't we do that anymore? Well, because the the whole of the New Testament shows us that the sacrificial system of Leviticus was all pointing to Christ. That The animals that were sacrificed was a temporary measure that was to show us, look, sin is costly, life is damaged through sin your lives are damaged and the lives around you are damaged and it, you can't just click your fingers and make it go away there has to be forgiveness there and to be forgiveness there has to be redemption there has to be a sacrifice and it was all pointing to Christ he was our sacrifice once and for all and so all of that stuff was pointing to Jesus and showing us and so the law of, of all the sacrificial laws you'll read were fulfilled in Christ and are now in that sense fulfilled and done away with. The second laws are are fulfilled when Jesus formed a new covenant. He said uh, in John, I'm forming a new covenant with God's people. The old covenant was there before, and there was a new covenant that he was forming. And and the new covenant has a whole different set of, of framework and ways that we're called to live. And so stuff in the old covenant actually didn't carry forward much of it that fulfilled under that covenant. For example, do not cut the hair on the side of your head or clip off the edges of your beard, PK. Watch yourself. Do not <laughs> You've got to be careful, It said. And, and, and for example, another example would be the whole thing about the food laws, what you can and can't eat. What was the point of all those laws was to say, you are called to be a holy people. You are called to be separate. You are called to be pure and separate from the people around you. What happened in the new covenant is that We're still called to be a holy people, but it's a whole different way. In those days, holiness was from the outside in. In our days, holiness is from the inside out. God says, I will write my laws on your heart. I will put my laws on your heart and cause you to obey them. I'll put my Holy Spirit within you. You will be mini temples, carriers of the Holy Spirit. We looked at this last week. So the outward laws that show uh, purity and holiness were, were all the old covenant. The new covenant is an inward law that comes from our hearts, and in that way, it's been fulfilled. The third category are some of the laws that have been filled through, fulfilled through principles. So, for example, um, there's a, a whole set of laws around if you've got a, a, vi- you've got a vineyard, you should, should not uh, pick up the grapes that fall into the ground, but you should leave them for the poor. I haven't even got a vineyard. I'd like one. If anyone's got one, can you share some grapes with me? You know, what do I do? I can't fulfill that law. Well, the point, of course, is not that you've all got to go rush out now and plant some plant a vineyard or no nice as that might be the point is that God was saying to his people look I don't want you to I want to be generous to you but I don't want you to take that generosity and hoard it all you know spend every last consumeristic penny I want you to leave enough round the edges to, to help the poor I'm a generous father and I want you to be generous like me that's what he was speaking about. So you never see laws about grapes and vineyards repeated in the New Testament. What you do see is, don't forget the poor. Be a people who don't forget the poor. So it's fulfilled, not in the, 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 um, uh, the detail, but it's fulfilled in the principle that as believers, we should be the most generous people that people meet. You know, wouldn't that be amazing if people at the end of their lives, whether they became Christians or not, or not or could look back on their lives and think, who were the most generous people to me in my life? And they were to think, it was all the Christians I met. The Christians were the most generous people that I met in my life. Wow. <laughs> that would be a testimony, let alone whether they'd heard the gospel of Jesus in itself. That's the kind of people that God wants us to be. The fourth is this. Some laws are fulfilled by us continuing to obey them in our day. They're never overturned. They're never uh, uh, um, told that they don't apply anymore. In fact, they are repeated and strengthened. The question then is, of these four categories, where does the sexual ethic of Leviticus fit? Well, it clearly fits into the fourth category. Leviticus talks about incest and bestiality and sex outside of marriage and and and, and the, the, the the fourth category is where that stuff fits because the, they are never repeated Jesus or the other apostles never said those don't apply anymore, and equally they were actually strengthened in the New Testament as we'll see and so those uh, those laws. Uh, clearly fit into that category our relationship with the law has radically changed we don't now fulfill it on the outside because we're trying to earn god's favor we fulfill it from the inside because we want to because we believe god's got the best for us and that his laws his commands are for our flourishing and for our best we're not under under law we're under grace but it doesn't mean to say we chuck the law away it means we fulfill the law it's the the grace that teaches us to say no So so when it comes to Levitical law, it's clear that it's a blanket ban on same-sex activity between men. Women are never mentioned. It was never changed or corrected in the New Testament. In fact, we'll see it strengthened. And although these are hard words, we also see that these are words that are meant to point us to faith in Christ. The Old Testament, as we'll we'll, uh, just mention, the rest of the Old Testament doesn't say anything else really about homosexuality. It says a lot about sex. And it paints sex as a gift from God uh, to be enjoyed in a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman. A whole book of the Bible, Song of Songs, talks about uh, the gift of, of sex. And if you ever think God's a prude about sex, just read Song of Songs next time your parents are in the room and see who blushes first, you or God. It's embarrassing. But the Old Testament also shows us the dangers of sex that go outside of God's design and the impact that it has on people's lives. What about the New Testament then? What does the New Testament say? Well, we've got to start with Paul. This is the fourth passage of five that we're going to look at. And Paul, uh, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, writes extensively about sexual morality. And in Romans 1, he paints a picture or, or Romans one through three, he paints a picture of where we are, the state of humanity, and and just to give you the backdrop, Romans one basically talks about the state of the Gentiles, particularly around sexuality, but also lots of other sins. He says the Gentiles are lost without God, and then in chapter two he picks it up and says, you know what, the Jews are. Lo- don't think you Jews are uh, think you're any better off. You Jews are lost without God as well. And in Romans three he finishes it off and says, basically you're all lost. The point is not to condemn gay people. The point, the context is to condemn everybody. (laughs) To say every one of you are lost in your sin. He gives examples of sins, but the point is not to give lots of specific examples alone. The point is to say you are lost without Christ. You need a saviour. You need Jesus to save you, to rescue you. No matter what your particular issue is, you need a saviour to come and break into your life. That's the point of this. But let's read what he writes in Romans 1.24. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error." Paul calls out here gay and straight people in this passage. But we have to understand this is the clearest uh, of his writings on this issue that show that sex, out, sex activity outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is wrong. And you know, before we get into that, I heard the, 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 the tragic um, story the other day of a gay person saying they'd never heard a Christian tell them that God loved them. <laughs> And so before we get into this, I want to say to you, if you're listening to this and you have same-sex attraction or you are gay, whether online or in the room, God loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you and he sent his son to die for you. So you can never say that you've never heard a Christian say that God loves you. He loves you. Uh, If you listen to the first talk, you'll hear me describe my sordid sexual history and how I was addicted to pornography. And yet God loved me and pulled me out. And the same applies to each one of us, no matter how broken and how lost we are. However, this is a fairly clear passage on homosexual sex. This is the apostle who taught us so much about the love of God, but also the apostle who called us to repent of sexual sin where he saw it. Now, even though it's very clear and would seem to be straightforward, there are, again, some loud minority of voices who are saying, hang on a minute, I think we've got this wrong. It doesn't mean what we think it means. And I just want you to hear from me three of the most common arguments that you will hear and what I think about them. The first is the cultural argument. Some would say, well, hang on, in the New Testament, they didn't even have an understanding of sexual identity as we have it today. They didn't think about gay and straight. And you know what? To a degree, that is true. There is no terms for homosexuality in that sense, or gay or straight. They would never be thinking to themselves, is is Brutus gay? They would think as Brutus having sex with men, but they didn't have a a kind of blanket category like we have in our understanding today. So they argue well, Paul can't be talking about monogamous gay sex as we see it uh, in committed relationships today. He's talking about pedestry. Now, Pedestry was a particular Roman and Greek um, construct in society where men would have sex with uh, young boys and te- young men or, t- or teenagers, either for money or basically to increase social standing. It was a very complex uh, thing that was going on and was widely approved. And they're saying, well, that's the only homosexual activity that Paul knew about. That's what he's talking about. However what we have to understand is that while pedestry was certainly the most common form of homosexuality in Paul's day, it is not true that in New Testament times they didn't have committed faithful gay relationships with adults, between adults as we have them today. The fact that Emperor Hadrian uh, had a a male lover who was an adult was well known and many other examples. N.T. Wright who's one of the foremost uh, uh, New Testament scholars around today, said this, There is a popular belief just now that the ancients didn't know about lifelong same-sex relationships, but this is easily refuted by the evidence, both literary and archaeological. Paul considers both partners in this passage to be doing wrong. It's not dominating or abusive p- pedestry he's talking about this. Some say, well, what about the excessive lust argument? Paul calls out excessive lust as being the issue. Well, what about homosexual relationships that aren't excessive, that are kind of faithful and, and monogamous? But but verse 26 doesn't even mention excessive lust. It says this, for their women exchange natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And elsewhere, Paul speaks against faithful relationships. He speaks against in 1 Corinthians about a man's relationship with his father's wife. It was faithful as far as we know. It was monogamous. Paul speaks against it. This is what Sam Albury writes. Paul calls for the church member in question to be expelled from the fellowship and the whole church to express remorse at what has happened. Faithfulness demonstrated in an otherwise prohibited relationship does not make it any less sinful. A third argument you'll come across is some say, "Well, Paul says this is against nature. But look at nature. There are acts of same-sex uh, sexual activity in, on all sorts of animals. So it can't be against nature. And others would say, "Well, this is, how I was, this is how I was born. I've always felt this way. It's not against nature for me. You'll hear that argument as well. Paul must be wrong. But Paul is most common, most likely using the common sense of against nature, which was used in his day, and there's lots of literature on it. It was used in his day to mean it's against original design. It's against the original design that uh, God has laid down for us. What's clear is that Paul is saying that sexual immorality, but including uh, home, uh, same-sex sexual morality, is something to be repented of. This. Oh, oh. And what we'll see... As we look forward, is that as he talks again about it in 1 Corinthians, as he talks about it in 1 Timothy, is he says exactly the same thing. Let me just read to you one passage, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's clear that yet again, Paul's speaking here against homosexual activity amongst other sexual sin. And he's saying that it's not right. But notice he's not saying that to be attracted to someone of the same sex is sinful. He's specifically speaking about the activity, the act of engaging in gay sex. That's what he's talking about. That one is a temptation or a feeling. The other is an activity. And Paul is clearly defining between the two. And we'll look a little bit more about that in part two. But as as an overall, it's it's critical for us to understand that we all have desires which go against God's plan. We all have temptations that go against God's plan, and we all have to decide what we're going to do with them. Are we going to follow them or are we going to submit them to Christ? Each one of us have to do that, but we'll look again at that more again in part 2. The message that you get out of these passages is, uh, we looked at today, I think is pretty clear. It's pretty straightforward. There are a few voices that contend against them, but it's pretty straightforward. But I don't want us to miss the end of uh, uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians, because this is what Paul writes. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's argument is that no one is too far lost that no one is beyond redemption, that no one is outside of the grace of God, that everyone is called to follow him and respond to him. Some argue we're all sinners, so why pick on gay people? I would agree. Paul is saying we're all lost. The issue is not how lost you were, the issue is which direction are you traveling in? Are you coming towards Christ or walking away from him? Are you responding to him or denying him? This is what Wesley Hill writes. One of the most striking things about the New Testament teaching on homosexuality is that right on the heels of the passages that condemn homosexual activity, there are without exception resounding affirmations of God's extravagant mercy and redemption. God condemns homosexual behavior and amazingly extravagantly, at great cost to himself, lavishes his love on homosexual people. Let's finish with Jesus. What did jesus say about this and some would say and i've heard it said well jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality i heard a pastor say jesus didn't say anything about gay sex neither would neither should we well let's look at that what did jesus say or not say mark chapter 10 the pharisees came up to jesus in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife he answered them what did moses command you they said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has therefore joined together, let no man separate. The context is divorce and marriage and remarriage not uh, not homosexuality we have to bear that in mind but look at how Jesus makes the argument he could have just quoted from Genesis 2:24 he could have just said look married people are one flesh therefore separating them is very difficult you know it's that's why divorce is an issue for me but he actually pulls in an earlier verse the verse we read at the beginning Genesis 1:27 god made them male and female he pushes this together and he pushes these two verses together to show us his definition of marriage including sexual difference that that was important to him the big pushback would be well jesus isn't speaking here about homosexuality and to a degree that is true he didn't ever speak about it directly and some would say well you know he was silent on it therefore he must have been indifferent about it But you know what? There are good arguments from silence, and there are bad arguments from silence. I have never spoken to my kids about uh, uh, breaking into the train yard, climbing on top of the train, and and running across the top of a moving train in the dark. I've never talked to them about that at all, never even mentioned it. If you were to take my kids aside and say to them, how do you think your dad would feel about trespassing in the train train yard and climbing on top of a moving train and running on the top? Without any question, all three of them would categorically say, dad wouldn't approve of that. Well, why not? Has he ever spoken to you about it? No. Well, how do you know he wouldn't approve of it? Well, I know my dad, and I know what he doesn't approve of, and I know what he does approve of. I know what he, by what he's said, but also by what he's not said. There are good arguments from silence, and there are bad arguments from silence. Look at the context of Jesus. Good arguments understand the context. And, and, and some would say, well, the Jews had various views on homosexuality. They did not in Jesus' day. The Jews of Jesus' day argued about a lot of things, as you can read in the Bible. They disagreed on most things, but they did not disagree on this. For 500 years before Jesus and 500 years after, there is no disagreement in Jewish history, Jewish writing on this subject. They all agree on this, that God does not condone condone same-sex activity, without question. So, Jesus' silence could have meant that he differed from that but I don't think it's likely. He would have been the only religious leader from the Jewish background who disagreed in a thousand years. Do you think he would have done that by being silent? I think he would have spoken out on it if he, if he disagreed in any way. Some would say, well, Jesus was silent on other sexual issues. And I would agree. He was silent on other sexual issues, but that for, therefore doesn't mean that he was indifferent about them. In fact, when you look at Jesus and his sexual ethic, he actually took the more conservative stance in his day he, he, he was conservative on his view on, 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 on adultery and, uh, and divorce. He was conservative in his view on promiscuity and fornication. He was even conservative on how we think. He's like, don't let lust get out of control in your head. That's the seeds of adultery. He was very, very conservative in his view. And as we've seen, when, when Jesus speaks about marriage, he goes out of his way to affirm that's between a man and a woman. So if you, I would agree, Jesus in some senses was silent on the issue of homosexuality. But if he was silent, then what we've got to read from his silence, I would say, is that he agreed with what the Bible says as we've read it. That he agreed with a cultural view of his day and that no one else was debating it with him and he didn't need to debate it with them because he agreed with them. So we've looked at a real whistle-stop tour. What does the Bible say? We've looked at five key passages We've also looked at where there's been pushback to this view. And the danger with doing it that way is that you might think, well, you know, some scholars are saying this and some are saying that. You know, which is it? Well, let's just go with a kind of more liberal, culturally fitting way. It saves a whole lot of trouble. Uh, Why don't don't we go with that? But it really isn't like that. You know, among scholars who see the Bible as we do, that it's authoritative, that it's complete, that it's true, there is a very, very high level of agreement over what the Bible teaches about same-sex activity. What I want to do though as we finish is look once again at Jesus because I would say that even if you agree with me with what I believe the Bible teaches, there is some brutal challenge for us in this whole subject of our sexual ethics. If you look at Jesus, the immediately after he gives the most rigorous ethical speech probably ever given in any religious history, Matthew 5 through 7, where he calls people uh, out about murder and he calls people out about uh, the the lust in their minds, where he calls people out about their generosity or lack of it. I mean, you read Matthew 5 through 7, it is so hard-hitting. Yet straight after that, we read about him walking through the villages and the towns and interacting with people. And you see who Jesus spent time with. And he spent time and healed the the servant of a Roman centurion who represented one of the most murderous regimes ever to inhabit the planet. He spends time with a woman who was a sinful woman, it says probably a prostitute, and he allows her to anoint his head and his feet with oil. A scandalous act. He calls Matthew, a tax collector, who, let's face it, was hoarding wealth in a way Jesus told him not to hoard. He calls him to come and follow him. Jesus was incredible in the way that he responded to people. And when he's challenged on the kinds of people he's hanging out with, and they're like, well, who, what are you doing here? This is what he says. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. What's the point? Jesus leads with love. Jesus leads with love. As Preston Sprinkle says, if you believe that gay sex is sinful... And you're truly following Jesus, you should have more gay friends, not less. If you believe that gay sex is sinful and you're truly following Jesus, you should have more gay friends, not less. Jesus is so provoking to both sides of this. One of our leaders of our groups was telling me how she and their group encountered this or connected with this guy who was gay. And she said, at first, you could tell he was super suspicious of the group and, and, and how he was going to be treated. But by the end of it, he was just overwhelmed by the love that they'd shown him. That's what, we've got a long way to go on this, but that's the kind of thing that I'm wanting to see. The love of Christ displayed through us as a community. Jesus is provoking to both sides of this. You know, To some who want him to be kind of wishy-washy, some kind of hippie Jesus, he is unwavering truth. But to some who want him to be cold and hard... He is overwhelming love. He is both. And, and if you've met a Jesus and you haven't been overwhelmed by his love and radically challenged by his truth, then honestly, you haven't met the real Jesus. If you haven't been overcome by the love that he has for you and totally provoked by your, in your lifestyle, then you have not met the real Jesus. You've met a caricature of Jesus. The real Jesus is 100% love and 100% truth. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. And I want to build a society and we can be part of this where we can listen and love and respect and serve people even when we don't agree with them. That's the kind of community I want to build. That's the kind of society that I want to be part of. And that's the kind of people that we need to be and we need to be modeling to the world around. What would it look like to be a church that leads with love? To be 100% truth and yet 100% love at the same time. And we'll look more at that in a couple of weeks. I hope you've seen today, we believe the Bible is God's blueprint for life. I hope you've seen that it clearly shows that God loves gay people, but he's not in favour of gay sex. And in a future week, we're going to look at what's the implications, what, is it? what does it mean for us who follow Christ? How do, we, how do we interact with those in the world around on these issues? But I want, to, I want to finish with um, Rachel's story. Rachel was interviewed as part of an article on Christians and homosexuality. And her story would just so impacted me, it was so profound. And this is what the author writes. As I sit eating fried chicken, listening to her story, I'm left with a question. How could you just give up such an important part of your identity, something that has been so fundamental to your sense of self for so long? Well, Rachel says slowly, It would definitely be tragic to give up something that valuable for something that is less valuable. And it would also be tragic to pretend like this very real part of my life, my sexuality, is less than it is. But Jesus is more precious than even that very deep part of me because of his great love. And she pauses for a moment with a smile. That sounds really weird if you're not a Christian, right? But the Bible talks about Christians' relationship with Christ being something that we should be able to die for because it's so precious. And celibacy and singleness are not death, she says, frankly. Not having sex or not experiencing a romantic relationship is a severe thing. But I'd be willing to give up even more than that. In fact, giving up things is a very normal part of the Christian life. There are lots of people who give up sex, who give up their bodies, who give up their money. And you don't really do it out of obligation. You do it out of love. You're captured by Christ's love. And it drives you to do things that you never thought possible before because Jesus gives you this sense of security, this sense of purpose, and this sense of an ultimate destination. Rachel concludes, the reason that most people aren't Christians is either because they think that Jesus isn't real or he isn't really worth it. But Jesus is both. He's really real and he's really worth it. Yes, I gave up some major things. I gave up some significant sexual relationships but God has heaped upon me beautiful things and good things in their place as we look at this together I feel that probably those of us who would call ourselves heterosexual are going to be some of the ones who are most challenged by the radical stories that you will hear of people who are believe what we believe that the bible says and are radically walking out at great personal cost I believe there's going to be challenge for all of us on our sexual ethic. Not just what we think. We've been so indoctrinated by the movies and by the stuff we read in society and perhaps even so fearful to express any differing view to the world around us. But there's going to be a radical challenge for us, not just to believe but also to learn how to speak about it and also to learn how to live it out. I believe God's on us for it. Amen. Caroline, let's stand together. Caroline's going to pray for us.
1: Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your kindness, Father, that leads us to repentance. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to break every chain, to break my chains, to take my shame. Jesus, you bore all of my sin and all of my ugliness and all of my shame on the cross. You carried that so I wouldn't have to. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. There's no one else like you. And I just thank you as well, God, just for the grace of your word. Jesus, I thank you for the grace of your word, that it is um, a light to our feet. It's a lamp to our path. That even the, the tough stuff, the stuff that feels controversial, the stuff that we have to really stop and grapple with, Jesus even that stuff is in there because um, because you're good and because you want you want us to have good fulfilling lives that you want us to show who you are Jesus that you want us to join you on your mission to bring your kingdom on this planet god we thank you that it, that that this whole um area jesus this whole um series God and everything that encompasses God we know it's nuanced for every person in this room Jesus and we just ask you father just to give us your grace give us your grace and give us your wisdom as um, as corporately as a family as we talk about it and individually as we talk about it amongst our friendship groups and in our um, in our groups Jesus that you would give us your grace God cover us with your grace, flood us with your love, Jesus, that we could just be vessels of your pure, liquid love, Jesus. Let us be so irresistible because of your love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.